And if you've got preacher phobia, just hang on. 30 minutes and we'll be done. 40 maybe. Take your Bibles and go with me. Luke, actually I'm going to give you four different passages of Scripture, okay? So uh, you'll need several fingers and whatever else you need to mark spots. First is Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, your Bible probably falls open there if you've been coming on Sunday mornings. Uh, The second one is Psalm 91. Luke 4, Psalm 91, and then Deuteronomy 6. Luke 4, Psalm 91, Deuteronomy 6, and Exodus 17. I'll give those to you again as we move forward. Uh, While some of you are turning there, Luke 4, Psalm 91, Deuteronomy 6, Exodus 17. While you're turning there, let me say something else about next Sunday. Okay, I mentioned that it's our fifth Sunday, Family Celebration Day. We'll be in here at 10 o'clock, no Sunday school, no early service. I didn't, I did not mention that uh, we also will have lunch after this service, and uh, we need you to bring desserts, lots of desserts, okay? So uh, that'll be next week, and I hope that you'll make it a point of coming, bring somebody with you, and then we won't have any activities here in the afternoon next week because of that, okay? So um, how many of you are currently in school in one way or another, as a student, as a teacher, college student, whatever? Raise your hand, all right? Okay, so those of you who are currently there, the rest of us are glad that we're not in your shoes, but I want to take your attention and push you to the tests that you take, okay? Uh, And because whether you're currently in school or not, uh, test is just kind of one of those things that seems to go with school. If you happen to be a teacher, I want to get on the teacher side of it for a second, but before I do that... Uh, what is your favorite kind of test to take? Let me give you a couple of examples, all right? I, I didn't learn about test taking too much until I got into some of the latter stages of formal education. Uh, until I got to seminary, for instance, my favorite kind of test to take was true-false tests. You know why I like those the best? I had a 50-50 chance, okay? Uh, and, you know... Even I occasionally would get one right that way. And then I got to seminary, and there's a professor, he's not there anymore, but uh, Jack McGorman used to give true-false tests, or part of his tests were true-false, and he figured out that 50-50 ratio thing, and so he added a little twist to it. And that was if you put something in the blank, either a T or an F, and you missed it, then he counted off twice for that. So instead of just a one point off for getting it wrong, you got two points off for getting it wrong. But if you got it right, you only got one point for that. It was better to leave it blank than it was to put the wrong letter there. Uh, And so I decided I didn't like true-false test too much after all. And so what's another one that you like? The multi-open book. Now, there's the best one. Uh, That's not a test. That's just an endurance thing. Um, How about multiple guess? I mean, multiple choice. Now, those are a little better because at least the answer is on the paper for you. And you just have to decide which one you want. I already told you about the guy that I had in seminary who had three columns of matching that 
seemed like they had nothing in common, but all three in one particular answer had to be right. So I got to where I didn't like those. And so what's another option? What's the next hardest after that? Short answer or fill in the blank. Okay, same. short answer, fill in the blank. You still have to know. I mean, you, it's not on the page for you so that you can say, yes, that's right, or no, it's not, or maybe this one goes there. This is the one where you have to dream up an answer. So short answer, fill in the blank. And then there's the dreaded essay question. Essay questions typically are designed to say, how much smoke can you blow on one piece of paper? It wasn't until I got into some of the education part of my seminary training that I began to realize that not only is there a way, a science of test-taking, there's also a science of test-making. One of my professors was especially instrumental in teaching me that. His name was Dr. Rick Yount, Y-O-U-N-T. And uh, the way he taught us was such that he forced us to know some things that impacted how we teach. He was in the education and the religious education end of the seminary there. And so he started teaching us about how people think and writing and teaching lessons that are specifically designed to get to how people think so that it connects better. By the way, Dr. Rick Yount, who taught us some of that, I'll give you an example in just a minute of, of how, he, how that plays out, but he's coming to our church in November, the third weekend of November, which I know is the third weekend of deer season. Uh, he's coming here, our education committee is bringing him in to do a teacher training set of studies for us, okay? So if you're a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study teacher, any kind in our church, or if you're even remotely interested in that, Dr. Yount will be here on a Friday night, Saturday, and then he'll be preaching for us on Sunday. Uh, And he's going to help all of us just kind of expand a little bit on this. But here's what he taught us. There are multiple levels of learning that occurs. It affects us in our emotion stuff, and good teaching addresses that, and the cognitive part of us, and the relational part of us, and all those kind of things come together. But he began to teach us things I started getting finally, that there's a difference between teaching and taking a test, especially for facts, and taking a test that measures how you use those facts. If I say to you, In 1492, Columbus, you fill it out, sailed the ocean blue, all right? Is that a fact? Is that true? False? Some of you just lost two points. As far as we know, that's true, all right? But that's one of those facts that we learn that are not particularly life-changing for us, right? Let me put it maybe in a little different way. How many of you have a driver's license? All right? For those of you who have a driver's license, please, when you drive, act like it. Here's the reality of driver's license, okay? If you go the way they did it years ago, is you have to go take a test, and there's this body of information that they give you in the form of a book, driver's handbook, or whatever it happens to be called. Uh, and they give this to you, and you're supposed to learn what? The rules of the road, basic laws, okay? How should you drive? 
Now, if, if that was enough, then you could take the written test and be done with it. But they don't let you do that. Why not? Because they've seen people drive. That's why. Let me bring this home even more. When I was living in New Mexico, I was forced, (laughs) that's probably the best way to say it, forced to get a commercial driver's license with a passenger bus certification. That made me a bus driver, okay? And the reason I had to get that is because at our church there, we had several church buses, and as a youth minister, it was my responsibility to be ready to be a driver at any point, and in order to do that, I had to have the right license, So I had that while I was there, and I hated it. So when I moved from there back to Texas, I moved to a church that didn't have any buses, and the first opportunity I got, I got rid of the commercial driver's license. There's a number of good economic reasons for me to do that. Mainly, if you get a ticket and you have one of those, you can't take a defensive driving class to get it off your record. Or that's what I was told. So I got rid of it, and then our church down there bought two buses because we needed to be able to deal with the uh, children's ministry that we were having and lots of kids without a whole lot of transportation available through their parents. And so our church bought two full passenger buses like the one that we have here. And so I said to the staff, you guys need to get your CDL so that you can be primary drivers. That's the way it works in churches usually. And in a moment of weakness, I said, it's only fair that if you have to get it, I'll get one too. So these guys studied the books. Now, I thought, I've had this before, piece of cake. So I go down, and I take the CDL, State of Texas, passenger bus certification, written test, and smoked it, never read the book. That's what I'm talking about right there. (laughs) And then they had the audacity to say to me, now we're going to do the driving test. And I told them, I had a CDL in New Mexico. I've already, they said, doesn't matter. I said, I just passed the test. Smoked the test. They said, doesn't matter. You got to take the driving test. So I got in the bus, flunked the test. I had to parallel park a bus, a 26-passenger bus. And I passed it. You know what caused me to flunk the test? I'll tell you. So glad you asked. I was driving, almost finished with the test. And we were making our way back to the DPS office. And you know how that works, right? I'm driving this thing and sitting back here behind me is the DPS officer. It happened to be a woman in this case. Uh, And as we're heading back, uh, I come and I'm from maybe here to the back of the room, maybe even to the front steps, and the light changes to yellow. All right, now you tell me, in Texas, if a light turns yellow, what are you supposed to do? See, everybody, 90% of Americans say you're supposed to speed up. All right? Now, here's the trick part of the question. In Texas, if you're driving a bus and the light turns yellow and there's a DPS officer sitting with you, what are you supposed to do? I stopped. Admittedly, it was an aggressive stop. I didn't slide sideways in the intersection or anything like that. It was an aggressive stop. She's never said a word except, you know, turn at the next deal or whatever. And so I get back to the deal and I'm thinking, smoke the test. Man, that was good. No wrecks, <laughs> nothing like that. And she told me, I'm sorry, but 
you did a great job, but I'm going to have to fail you for this test. Now, I knew that all that book stuff that I had been tested on, I had done it perfectly well. I'd been driving buses for a long time by that time. I knew how to drive a bus. Checking the mirrors and all that kind of stuff. I said, uh, why am I being failed on this test? And she said, you remember that yellow light? I said, I do. And she said, you stopped. (laughs) And I'm thinking, what? So I, and I said, so you're saying that I should not have stopped? I should have sped up and gone through it. And her response was, well, had you done that, I would have had to fail you. And I said, you do realize you leave me no options there. If I run through it and you're going to fail me, if I stop and you're going to fail me, there is no third option here. She said, that's right. The reality of the test was I didn't know what to do. So here's a, kind of the science behind test taking. Students, why do your teachers give you tests? And the answer is because they need to know what you know. Now, you always tip your hand and you tell them what you don't know, but they're really looking for what you know. So as we come now to this passage of Scripture, and some of you are wondering if we were ever going to get to Scripture this morning, I want you to take that whole picture that we just talked through of the reality of tests and the different kinds of tests that we take in life And who gives those tests and what those tests are designed to accomplish. And we take those to Luke chapter 4. Where we find now the third of these three different temptations that Satan brings at Jesus. And as you remember as we've been working our way through this. We said that all of these three hang underneath the umbrella that says any temptation that Satan brings at you is an attempt to... uh, to divert your fellowship with God. It's to break off that sense of being tied in with God. And our fellowship with him is always at stake when Satan comes knocking to say, hey, why don't you? And then we can fill in the blank on the way he comes at us. And we've looked at two different ways already. Here's a third way. And as I said with the last one, I'm going to say with this one, this is one of those master strokes by Satan. He's too smart to come get us head on most of the time. So we leave ourselves kind of susceptible from the side door entrance with him. It's kind of like at my house. If you come to visit me at my house and you go to the front door, it's kind of like your house, many of you, you, we may never know you're at the front door. If you come to my house, come in the side door because that's the one we use. That's the one Satan uses with you too, by the way, most of the time. And he's good at this. So let's look at this one and, and the whole idea of the testing that goes on in life, and let's see what he has to say to us. And here's the bottom line. Jesus' response to him, and this is going to be, don't test God. What we find in this passage, and the other three that we're going to pull into it, is that when Satan comes at us and he gets us to test God, Jesus says you really should turn that around and recognize that God's not on trial. What's at stake here is the way you view the role of God in your life. Luke chapter 4, we pick up reading in verse 9. 
And it says, and he took him, that is, and Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, here's a good point for me to stop. I'm going to give you a sermon within a sermon, okay? This is not the real sermon today, but it's worth hearing, all right? Satan took him to the temple, on the pinnacle of the temple. Here's a good truth for you. Don't be so naive as to believe that Satan will leave you alone while you're at church. As a matter of fact, one of the places that Satan does his best work with Christians is at church. Always sowing discord among the brethren. Always giving us that flash of insight that says, I can't believe she wore that to church today. That kind of stuff. So Satan takes Jesus to the temple, to the highest point on the temple, and he gives him this temptation. It's rooted in Scripture. So here's the second sermon within a sermon for you. Just because somebody gives you Scripture doesn't mean God's behind what they're trying to say to you. All right? Because here's what Satan says. And he um, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, If you're the Son of God, we've been saying all along that that if also could easily be translated since. He doesn't doubt the fact that he's God's Son. He's building his whole temptation off of that. Since... Sorry about that. Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. In other words, jump. Now, I've heard this. I know I keep interrupting, but hang with me for a second. I've heard this passage preached many times as if the temptation here is for Jesus to take some kind of shortcut to the public acclaim that would be his. In other words, it's presented as if the real temptation here is for Jesus to avoid all of the work of being Messiah and just jump off. And because they're in the temple area that these angels, well, I hadn't gotten all that far yet, but these angels would pick him up and set him down lightly. And so everybody around would say, wow, that's awesome. Look what God did. This must be Messiah. The problem with that is that's nowhere in this text. As a matter of fact, if you really look at this text, you understand that the highest point of the temple that they're talking about here is probably the part that that went to the backside and was a sheer drop-off from there all the way to the bottom of the valley floor beneath. Rocks, hard ground. It was an area where there were no people. This is not some attempt to make Jesus big, public, and famous. Well, maybe that's a good place for me to stop again. And say, one of the real temptations for Christians in our day and age, especially in the prosperity age of the gospel that many people say we're in, which by the way I say is heresy. They believe that if it's not a show, if there's not an adrenaline to it, then I just need to go find another place. Jesus was no adrenaline junkie. There's no reason for us to believe that the only place we really see God at work is when emotions are high. That's crazy. So at this point in a very private area, Satan says, why don't you just jump? And here's the part of the temptation that we need to get a handle on. Just throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. How should we understand that? Well, let's go from here. Now, you keep your place in Luke because we're going to come back to it. But let's go back to uh, Psalm 91 because that's the psalm from which Satan 
is quoting here. Psalm 91, and especially verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to read it for you. It says almost exactly what Satan said before, uh, back over in Luke. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now in this case, Satan quotes it pretty close to right. That doesn't always happen with him. So that's one of the reasons I say you got to be on your guard. He takes scripture, knows it better than we do, and twists it to what he wants it to mean. And that's the deal here. What we find inherent in what he is saying from these two verses is this temptation to Jesus. Just put God to the test. Let me rephrase that for you the way we normally say it. Now, God, are you really going to take care of this? Let me show you why I said Satan comes through the side door rather than face-to-face for us. We catch the face-to-face stuff pretty clearly, well, most of the time. He's smart enough to be subtle about what he does, and so he kind of sneaks it in this way, and he ignores the entire context of this psalm. Don't miss that. It's one of the reasons that I've taken each of these temptations separately so that we could dig into them to see that handling temptation is much more than just throwing a verse of Scripture out. We need to understand the depth and the the intricacies of what he's doing to us. So look at the context of the psalm. It starts in verse 1. I asked Spencer to put verse 1 up here for us. I'm going to read it very quickly, but I want you to listen to what the psalmist is actually pointing to. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now stop for a second. That's a verse that colors the entire rest of the psalm. Everything from that point forward draws from this picture of an individual who hears God say what he says to us. I'm going to come to that in a few moments. And he says, I need God in my life. Actually, he says it a little more strongly than that. He essentially says, I'm not going to live anywhere except in the shadow of where God is. I can just stop there. We could have a whole sermon right there. How is it with you and God? Is God an acquaintance of yours or do you live in the shadow of the Almighty? How many times do we live our lives where we go about our business and somewhere in the process something triggers it and we look backwards and we go, oh, where's God? Okay, God, I need you to take care of me in this. This is the opposite. Psalm 91.1 says, The one who makes his house in the shadow of the Almighty. He dwells in God's house. It's not saying, God, come with me. It's saying, I refuse to go without God. That's what that says. You see how different that is? Before I even get to the rest of the psalm, how different that is from what Satan's doing? Satan is a master tactician. And he comes at Jesus and he says, you know what? You're the son of God. God said he's going to take care of you. Let's just try him out. Go ahead and jump. But Jesus knows better than that. We'll come to his response in a few moments. 
Right now, I want to make sure that we bear down on understanding the tactics of the devil. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now listen to what he says, what the implications of that are. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Satan's temptation comes at Jesus and essentially questions God's role in his life. In an accusatory way, you know, he says he'll take care of you. So why don't you just test him out? Go ahead and jump. It's okay. We're on the back side here. Nobody will know if it works or not. But you see, the temptation is for the step away from God. Remember what I said? It's always about fellowship with him. And to distrust the role that God plays in your life is to distrust God and his character. So verse 3 says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you. Here's one of Teresa's favorite verses. Because she lives with me. He will cover you. Talking about God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. You see the picture of that? That's not saying, God, come with me or God, show up. That's saying, God, I'm going to draw close to your heart. And the picture is of this as it just pulls you close to his heart. There's trust there. There's safety there. Let me put it back in terms of Luke 4. There's no need to put God to the test there. Because God's not on trial. Who is it that you look to? for protection in life. Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a bank account, an investment, a job. Who is it to whom you draw when you need to be consoled? This is a psalm of faith. It's about trusting in God and his care and his deliverance And yet Satan uses it and he twists it from its original context. It's about being protected in times of duress and Satan uses it as a way to say, see if you can trust God. And it's the the same tactic he used in the Garden of Eden when he said to the woman there, has God really said that you're not really going to die If you eat this, and it's that move to question the integrity and the character of God and the role that he plays in our lives. And so in doing that, what Satan has done now is he's twisted the psalm and he makes a test question out of it. Can you really trust God? Can you? I don't want that driver's written test answer. I want the real answer from you. I don't want the one where you check it off in Sunday school that says, I can trust God, check, and you turn your paper around. I want the one that gets out there when you're driving around that says, can I really trust God? I I don't have enough food in my pantry to get me through tomorrow. Can I trust God? 
See, one of the things that the church is famous for is making sure that we let everybody know what our needs are so that they can be sure and pray for us in our need. Which is another way of saying, pray for me because I don't have enough food in my cabinet for tomorrow. And somebody knowingly will say, well, I've got extra food. I'll bring you food. Who are you depending on if that's the case? If your job dried up tomorrow, do you trust God? Can you trust God? And Satan plays Yankee Doodle Dandy with us because he knows that deep within us, especially if we're apt to play God ourselves, we're not really too sure that we can trust him. Oh, we'll trust him for our eternity because we can't do anything about that anyway. It's the paycheck tomorrow that I'm more concerned about here. You see, knowing that God is trustworthy puts us in a crisis of behavior. If I really believe that he's trustworthy, then I have to submit myself to his authority and his care today. For Jesus to buy into what Satan was pushing there would have been to push God into a corner and say, all right, you're on trial now. You better show up. Jesus won't play that game. And For us, it plays out for us in the way we live each day and the way we handle those crises and those kind of things that come to us and we push God into corners and we say, you're obligated to take care of me because after all, I'm your child. And many times I think God says... You didn't have to get in trouble for me to prove that to you. Well, let's take another step. Deuteronomy chapter 6 now takes us. You get enough of the flavor of Psalm 91 and how Satan turns that. And I guess really I ought to go to Jesus' response. So let me just tell you in Luke chapter 4, Jesus responds to that and he said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for his answer there. And I guess we should also remind you that this is the same passage that we've been in with other with the other two responses that Jesus gave. Satan comes at him with this temptation ultimately designed to break fellowship with God. Both times Jesus has gone to the book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 6, we come to this one. And Jesus reads, actually uh, quotes to him from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, that says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Make sure we're all on the same page. Satan comes with the temptation. The temptation is questioning God's role in Jesus' life. Can you really trust him to do what he said? In doing that, he takes a couple of verses out of Psalm 91 and he totally twists them out of their original intent and he makes them say what he wants them to say. Jesus recognizes that. Jesus recognizes what's on the edge here and so he responds out of that level of covenant that we find in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. As we've looked at this, remember the Shema, the first few verses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Building on that, he's also reminded them of all of those wilderness wanderings and why God let them go through that. You ever wonder why God lets you go through trouble? 
That's one of those doubting kind of questions that is pervasive in our society. After the events of 9-11, after any tragedy, we hear people say, how could a loving God let that happen? You know what's behind that question? Can you really trust God? This is one of Satan's favorite tactics in breaking fellowship. And so in Deuteronomy 6, I already read verse 16, but let's back up a little bit and let's see some of what's at work here. So in verse 10, it says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, he's talking to the children of Israel, gathered at the Jordan River, ready to go in and possess the promised land after 40 years worth of wandering, eating manna, drinking water from a rock, Shoes that don't wear out, all of that kind of stuff. God's been taking care of them. He says in verse 11, and house, uh, back up to verse 10, with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God who shall... You shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. For you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus answered out of the context of a statement of faith. I will take care of you, God says, so don't test me. You see just how insidious this temptation is now for Jesus? Satan says, can you really trust God? I know what it says, but just jump off and let's see if he's good for his word or not. Jesus quotes from this passage that is one of the strongest passages in all of the Old Testament that says, I, your God, am involved with you and I will take care of you as I have done. Jesus cuts straight to the heart. So when you get that temptation, can you really trust God? No, I know God says that I'm supposed to give money to that, whatever that is. But you know, I only got $20 left. God's wanting 20 of my 20. I might need to buy right 44 drink tomorrow. I won't have it because I had to give it to God. You think God brought you this far to drop you now? (laughs) So you don't think like that. I don't know, God, you know. I trust you with my eternity. I I just got to get through today. So I'll talk to you tomorrow. But don't be giving me this stuff about testing me. See, Satan pushes it around and suddenly God's on the hook. God's the one being tested. And what that says to us, the test giver, is that we don't really know God. And we don't think he really knows us. And it's trouble for our fellowship at that point. So quickly, let me get to 
that Exodus passage because it's the one that pulls it all together. Notice that Jesus says, or God says in, that, in Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That's Exodus chapter 17. And if you take a few minutes, you can go back there sometime this afternoon and read uh, the whole passage. But let me give you the background on that because God understands that his people tend to test him and he doesn't want any part of that from us. And so in chapter 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by, cha- uh, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses And they said, give us water to drink. Actually, my suspicion is they said it this way. Moses, give us something to wear. I'm thirsty. Moses was a pastor of a Baptist church because it says, and Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You see how Jesus pulls all of this together in one small statement over there in Luke 4? Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? We were so happy being slaves in Egypt. It makes no sense what they're saying here, except, hear me now, they are so focused on their situation that they lose sight of the promises of God. And that's 21st century Christianity for you right there. The way we test God is when we take our eyes off of him and that picture of that bird as it pulls its young to itself, wraps its wings around them and pulls them close, that picture that God gives us of himself and we look at our situation and we say, oh, it's so much better when I was living in squalor rather than not being comfortable today. And Satan says... Gotcha. Can I really trust God? And we keep reading. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? Moses had a few ideas from time to time about what to do with these people. They are almost ready to stone me. I want you to listen to what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That's a great statement. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so. In the... <laughs> All right, time out. If you were Moses and you knew that they were ready to kill you, would you be willing to go with your rod and go, <laughs> go stand at a rock and hit it? Would you tell them they're getting ready to get water out of that when you do that? Think Moses trusted God at all? And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Here's the test that they put on him by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And in Luke 4, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, just jump. Let's see if God's good for his word or not. Jesus takes them back, a verse out of Deuteronomy that pushes us back to Exodus, that pushes us to the incredible provision of God for those people. Ten plagues to get them out of Egypt. Once they got out, the crossing of the Red Sea in a miraculous fashion. 
the wiping out of the military force of Pharaoh and his army in a miraculous fashion, getting across to that, eating manna every day, miraculous fashion, eating quail every day, miraculous fashion. And one little situation, and they get their eyes off of God's supply, and they ask the question, is God really here or not? Hello, what kind of proof do you need? Is God really good for it? Can I really trust him? What if he makes me be a preacher? Everybody hates preachers. I don't want to be a preacher. What if he makes me face an uncertain future? And Satan whispers in your ear, can you really trust God? Lord, I hate these kind of sermons. And I know it's because I find myself all in them in the wrong ways. So many times, even this week, I've decided that my plan was better than yours. My approach trumps yours. In the doing of that, we reveal our own wickedness. The fundamental level of fellowship with you, we blow it because we listen to the whispering of the accuser who comes and he says, I think God's really good for that. So we ask for your grace and mercy today. Help us to get this right give us hearts that trust you that that are able to look backwards and see time after time after time after time that you have pulled us close to yourself in spite of the terrible situations that we found ourselves in you've made a way proven yourself to be faithful Forgive us for testing you as if we don't really know that you know we're here. Help us to fall before you as willing servants. We ask you to help us with that today in Jesus' name.